0: that's why let's just be honest you're not always that easy that's why let's just be honest you're not always that easy some of you but we can be controlling and manipulative and distant and cold and indifferent and angry and frustrating and selfish and I could go on and that's just about me okay Um, today We want to take a teaching that is typically focused on our relationships outside of this room, and we want to turn it in and refocus it on relationships inside this room, inside the church, because this teaching really raises the bar on how we love one another when we are most undeserving. We find the teaching in Matthew chapter 5. If you want to open your Bibles there... That'll be the central passage that we look at today. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43, and it's part of Jesus' great teaching that's um, often called the Sermon on the Mount. And then this section begins like this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, at this section of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been issuing correctives to kind of bits that have crept into the beliefs of the people that are simply not valid. They're not of of God. And he's done this six times with this little um, pairing of phrase that he uses here. You have heard that it was said, such and such, and so and so. But I say to you something different. And he's done that six times. This is the sixth and final of those correctives. Now, to be fair, they had it half right, okay? The, the you shall love your neighbor half of what they were believing, that's straight out of the Old Testament, out of, right out of the book of Leviticus, um, love your neighbor. It's right there. But the second half, the hate your enemy half, is not straight out of the Old Testament. It doesn't say that anywhere. Some people infer that by different things that happen, but it is not an explicit teaching in the Old Testament. So scholars have debated about where did they get that idea that hate your enemy half of the teaching. And they go round and round and really struggle to figure out where it came from, but I'm pretty sure I know where it came from. It comes from in here it comes from inside of me see this is this is my natural bent love my neighbors hate my enemies Um, two two football seasons ago my youngest son Josiah had moved up to ninth grade and he gets to play high school football and he's on the JV team and he's playing a new position this year they moved him to middle linebacker, and he's finally figuring it out, and he's, and he's getting pretty good at it. And he has a couple games where he has, like, 17 tackles. That's a lot of tackles if you don't follow football. That's a bunch of tackles. And then we get this game set up with a team that we don't normally play. They've been a perennial powerhouse in our state, in our division. And uh, kickoff is set, first play of the game. Josiah's on special teams. We are kicking off. That means Josiah's job is to run down the field, tackle whoever gets the ball. All right? The ball is kicked off. We're watching the play unfold. All of a sudden, one of those collisions happens that you hear in the stands. And we look down there, and sure enough, there are two kids on the ground, and one of them is Josiah. Now, Steph always worries that Josiah will get hurt. I always worry that he'll hurt somebody else. (laughs) And sure enough, Josiah gets up and the other kid doesn't. And so things unfold. We start figuring out what went on. And um, later on, uh, I I look at the film um, because I have connections with the coaches. My other son is the coach. Um, so I'm looking at the film to figure out what happened. And this kid, Josiah's over here, and there's a kid two rows back, on the other complete other side of the field. He passes seven of our players, and he targets Josiah, and he spears him with his helmet, which is very dangerous and not not even legal. And that's what caused this huge collision. He was targeting my son. Later on in that same game, Josiah is still playing. The other kid never comes back, um, likely a concussion. Well, the game goes on, and at the perimeter of one of the plays, after the whistle's blown, a kid comes up to Josiah and through his helmet punches him in the nose, breaks his nose, gives him a concussion, and he's out of the game and out of several games, actually, after, after that. And so I'm trying to figure out what to do with this I start piecing this together and I and I realized that um, their coach, in all likelihood, had instructed their players to target my son and injure him so that he could not play in the game. And so I'm talking to coaches, you know, what do we have on film, what don't we have on film, what, what's my re- is, there a, is there a disciplinary recourse with this through the league? Um, I'm talking to friends who are principals, and I'm saying, uh, you know, what, what can I do? Should I contact the other principal? I don't, I don't want this to go on any further. You know, I don't want this to happen again. Um, I'm, I'm having all these conversations with all these people, and they're all out here. They're all about what should be done and could be done, and what do I want to be done. And that what I'm not doing is I'm not talking to Jesus about what needs to be done in here. And what Jesus says to me is, I say to you, Larry, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's when I knew why I wasn't talking to Jesus about what was going on. Um, it's not really what I'd hoped to hear. Jesus says that I am to love him. I am to love a coach who would intentionally try to injure my son to win a JV football game. It's not even a varsity game. That's a JV bunch of freshmen and a few sophomores running around. Jesus says it's not enough to just let it go. It's not enough to just get over it. It's not enough to retaliate. It's not that the questions I was asking out here are not good questions. I think they were, some of them. But in here, Jesus says, I am to love and pray for the coach who would have injured my son for a JV football game. What do you you think about that? It raises some questions, doesn't it? Um, It raises lots of questions, most of which we're not going to answer today because Jesus answers a series of questions for us, and I think they're the ones that he most wants us to think about. He doesn't answer them all. But he does answer three of them. Uh, He answers the question why we are to love our enemies and how we are to love our enemies, and then a second time from a different angle, how we are to love our enemies. So why how and how, and um, before we look at Jesus' answers to those questions, um, I would like to, my, my, my belief is that it's not just my bent to love my neighbor and hate, hate my enemies, it's yours too, and so as I warned you, Jesus is downright meddlesome today. And I think we need to pray together and just make sure that we are ready to welcome some very meddlesome teaching from Jesus. So if you would bow with me, let's ask him to be kind to us. Jesus, this teaching is not in us to do. We need you to do it in us and through us. So have mercy on us now and bring your teaching to light in the areas where our, in our life and the relationships in our life where it needs to be employed. Where we need to follow and love you. And by your spirit and your word, give us grace and strength to do it. We ask in Christ's name. For your sake. Amen. So first, why? Why would Jesus ask this of us? What exactly is he asking us to do? Um, A couple of years ago, some of you remember, there were horrible terrorist attacks in Mumbai, India. Um, And there's a, a very fiery, opinionated, orthodox Jewish rabbi who frequently makes the rounds on cable opinion shows who wrote an article about those terrorist attacks. His name is Rabbi Shmuley Botich. And in that article, Botich articles that people of goodwill ought to hate passionately and actively hate people who commit acts like those in Mumbai. And here's how he deals in that article with Jesus' command to love our enemies. He says, as for my Christian brethren who regularly quote to me Jesus' famous saying, love your enemies, my response is that our enemies and God's enemies are different parties altogether. Jesus meant to love those who steal your girlfriend cut you off on the road, or swindle you in a business deal. But to love those who indiscriminately murder God's children is an abomination against all that is sacred. Is there a man who is human whose heart is not filled with moral revulsion against terrorists who target a rabbi who feeds the hungry? Would God or Jesus ask me to extend even one morsel of my limited capacity for compassion to fiends rather than saving every last particle for their victims instead?" Could God really be so unreasonable? Could Jesus be so cruel as to ask me to love baby killers? And would such a God even be moral if he did? Could I pray to a God who loves terrorists? Could I find comfort in him knowing that he offers them comfort as well? No, such a God would be my enemy. He would abide in Hades rather than in heaven, and I would be damned before I would worship him. I will accept an eternity in purgatory rather than a moment of celestial bliss shared with these beasts. Okay. Now you know why he's on the cable shows, right? Pretty, prov- pretty provocative guy. Um, let me give you a contrasting response. Different atrocity, but similar in, in nature. Um, this comes from Pastor John Piper. And he wrote a number of years ago, in some parts of the world, Christians are still being crucified. Literally crucified. News agencies report at the time of this writing that five Christians have been crucified in Sudan, one being an Anglican priest. The detail is supplied that the executioners used six-inch long nails. But then he applies and interprets Jesus' teaching about loving enemies quite differently than Rabbi Botich did. This is what he says. He says, Jesus says, yes, love them. Love them. If they kill you, love them. If they take away your father, love them. If they destroy your home, love them. Love your enemies. Be that kind of person. Be so changed on the inside by the love of God that it really is possible. And unless we resort to the kind of circumventing gymnastics that Rabbi Bo does to get around the plain teaching of Jesus here, clearly Jesus' teaching is evident. Love your enemies. And we either do this or we deny him. It is that central. It is the mark of those who follow Jesus. And so, in the verses that follow, Jesus gives us three answers to the question why we should love our enemies. Three incentives, as it were, to love our enemies. It starts in verse 44. And on a rainy morning, just to help you stay awake, let's read this aloud together. All right? You can look at the screen. And we'll read it together. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Three incentives embedded in those verses that Jesus gives to us that we might love our enemies Um, and the first is in those first verses verse 44 and 45 where he says I say to you love your enemies pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven incentive number one when we love our enemies we are sons of our father who is in heaven now let me explain what I think this is not, what Jesus does not mean first. What he doesn't mean here is that all you ladies are excluded, okay? This is not a gender-exclusive statement, okay? It is simply a way of reflecting that in Jesus' kingdom, all the rights that belong to sons in that culture are now available to all, his, all in his kingdom, regardless of the gender, okay? So it's not a gender-exclusive statement. It's also not a statement that this is how you become sons. That if we love our enemies, then we are, then we can be adopted into God's family by virtue of the work that we do to be good enough. Okay? Loving your enemy, John Piper says, doesn't pay for your birth into God's family. It just proves that you've already been born into God's family. What Jesus does mean by our being sons of our Heavenly Father when we love Him, when we love our enemies, rather, is is twofold, I think. Um, First, it can mean this expression to be sons of our Father in heaven can mean intimacy of relationship. Um, Professor Dale Bruner calls it the divine carrot. The strongest motive, he says, for keeping Jesus' hard commands is this. When we do try to keep them, we experience God's fatherly love in a way that we had not experienced that love before. So that as we obey him, we experience his pleasure on our lives in ways that we otherwise would not. So intimacy is is implied in that expression. But I think centrally what Jesus means is that we become like him. It's that old expression, like father, like son. Jesus essentially is saying in the next little bit, this is what the father does with his enemies. So when you love your enemies, you're being like him, like father, like son. In verse 45, he says, For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He makes the sun rise and the rain fall on good and evil alike. Again, Dale Bruner says, in creation, Jesus sees God's love for his enemies. Hence, Jesus' command is not asking disciples to do anything God himself is not doing daily and doing in great profusion through the millennia. It's happening today today. The sun rose, the rain came. All around the world it's happening, and God's mercy is falling on Al-Qaeda, on ISIS, on Boko Haram, just like it's falling on the Christian missionaries who are embedded in those same countries. God's love is that lavish that every day God is loving his enemies in practical, life-giving, life-sustaining ways. He's done it here this morning. The sun came up and the rain has fallen. The love of God poured out on the just and the unjust. Before a holy God, we are all enemies he has loved us when we were still enemies the Bible teaches us and so we become like him like father like son when we do the same we have received our father's love when we were still enemies we should pass it on we should Jesus says the incentive is that we are like our father when we love our enemies we're perhaps most like our father when we love our enemies Now, the second incentive he gives to love enemies is in verse 46. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? The implication is, hey, there's a reward for loving enemies. Okay? And if you read the next couple verses into chapter 6, and he talks more about reward, that reward comes from the Father who sees what we do in secret. So when you love your enemies, God himself who owns it all is going to reward you. God is going to reward you. And it, there are no better rewards. Okay? You do not want to miss out on God's reward. Like I said, he owns it all. He can be more lavish and he longs to be more lavish than anyone else. And plus his rewards are always connected not just to what he gives but to who He is and to knowing Him. The reward is being invited to know God more and more through our obedience in this way. Here's an example of that relational reward from the book of Hebrews. It says, Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. God is the reward. You get... You get to draw near to God and know Him. When we love our enemies, Jesus is teaching us, God is our rewarder. And nothing satisfies like the reward that is God Himself. So, a third incentive, a third reason to love your enemies. In, back in verse 46 again, if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So Jesus underscores this incentive with three questions back to back to back. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Gentiles is just an expression that means non-believers. And tax collectors is just an expression that means tax collectors. Okay. Only in Jesus' day, they were notorious cheats as well as being people who took your money that you didn't want to give. Um, Jesus says that love for enemies is what sets us apart as distinct from the world, from a non-believing world. It's the mark of a follower of Jesus, this love, even for enemies. You remember um, a couple weeks ago, I I quoted um, this little brief snippet from John Ortberg. He put it so well. He said, Christians are supposed to be different from people in the world by being more loving and more gentle, but everybody knows we aren't. So don't we have to do something to show we're different? In other words, he says, if we can't be loving and holy, shouldn't we at least be weird? Okay? Being weird is not what's supposed to set us apart. Okay? The way we love, even our enemies, that is what marks us as followers of Jesus. So a number of years ago, uh, Steph and I had the privilege of going up to New England and doing an end-to-end bicycle tour. It was, it was really, like, really cool. Um, you go to a historic inn, and you put your stuff there, and you get on your bikes, and you bike across this beautiful countryside of Vermont, and you end up at another historic inn, and minions bring your bags. It's fabulous, okay? And so we're in one of those legs, going from inn to inn, and uh, Vermont is not flat, and the roads are not straight, and so we're on a, on a country road, but it's... It's got enough traffic on it that it has a painted line down the middle, and it's one of these kind of roads. And so we're riding on the, right on the edge of the road, on the, near the shoulder, the edge of the pavement, and uh, there's a driver behind us, and she is having fits getting around us. Um, she tries to pass when it's not safe to pass, and when it's safe to pass, she doesn't try to pass. And it's, it goes on like this for a long time, and finally, she makes it around us, and she is not pleased. Okay, it's evident she's not she's an elderly lady it's evident she's not pleased and she just kind of goes merrily on her way and we continue along and we make the turn to go into the city that where where the inn is and i see standing in the middle of the road this little grandma with gray hair doing this okay right and she's in the middle of the road so we stop and she lights into us explaining to us in no uncertain terms that we did not pay taxes to ride our bicycles on her roads, and so on and so forth, etc., etc. And uh, I was a little taken aback um, by this confrontation in the middle of the road by this little gray-haired lady. Um, But there's an expression um, that is in Latin, and it's so appropriate. It says, Soli Deo Gloria. Only to God be the glory. Because my response was, the first thing I said was, I am so sorry that we made that dangerous, that you felt threatened, that you were afraid, and that we we messed up your day. And, and, you know, have a great day. Go on in the city ahead of us so we don't get in your way. And she said, I am not going to go in. I'm going to sit right here until you get all the way in. So it's going to take us like 15, 20 minutes to get in town. So I guess she just sat there. We never saw her again. Um, but you know that? Um, for that response to come out of me, um, God gets the glory for that. I think in part that's the result of decades of reflection on just the magnitude of my sin against the Father that I love, and the greater magnitude of His love for me. I, I was loved in such a way that my, my immediate response was to pass it on, and again, to God be the glory. That is not always the case. In fact, that's the only example, personal example I have of that. So, you'll probably hear it again. But there's a couple we're riding with. Okay, they are not believers, decidedly not believers. Steve and Caroline, and they're way younger than us, so they always finish way ahead of us. And uh, we get back and we have dinner with them in the inn that night, and I tell them the story. And he says, "What'd you do?" And I tell him what I did, and he looks at me and he said, "I would not have done that." Again, to God alone be the glory. See, that is why Jesus says we must love our enemies. To be lights shining in the darkness, lamps on a lampstand, a city set on a hill. We live and we love distinctively before a watching world. We are sons of our Father in heaven, eager to receive the reward of his pleasure on our lives Jesus says that's why that's why you should love your enemies now how second question is how how does that look to actually love and not hate our enemies and and to to get a a, some insight into that I want you to turn to Luke's account of Jesus sermon and he gives us some added detail in Luke chapter 6 just two verses, verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. And then he says, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And he gives us three practical ways to love our enemies. And the first is to do good to them. Jesus is calling us to actually do good and loving actions towards those he says who hate us—it's okay. not enough to not retaliate, to not hate back. Jesus says we must actively love by doing good deeds towards those who love who hate us. Right? Towards our haters. Now the apostle Paul expands on this teaching, I think, when he writes in Romans 12. He says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so the imagery that Paul is drawing on here from, from the Old Testament book of Proverbs is the meeting of needs. He is saying, when your enemy, the person who hates you, who dislikes you most, when they have a need, God is calling you to meet that need. You are the one. He wants to meet that need. And I would like to make a plea for special application of this principle in the hard places of your marriage. when marriages struggle to the point where love grows cold and hate finds a way in sometimes. Dislike, disdain. Jesus here gives us counsel that we must heed. He says we are to even love those who hate us. And we are to do that, Paul says, by loving actions, good actions. Deeds, He says, we must not be overcome by evil, and he holds out the hope we can actually overcome evil by doing good. Okay. And there's a helpful resource, just as a place to start. It's called, uh, I believe it's called the Love Dare. And it's just 40 days of loving acts, good loving acts to be formed to be performed for your spouse to help overcome evil with good Jesus says do good to them do good to those who hate you he also says that we are to bless those who curse us so he says we are to love with our actions we are also to love with our words We are to wish our enemies well. Back in our passage in Matthew 5, Jesus gives the simplest of examples, a great starting point. He says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The implication is we are to greet our enemies. We don't avoid them. You know, people, that when you see them coming in the grocery store, you go down the other aisle, right? You see people on one side of the street; you would cross to the other. Um, you don't. Paul says we greet them, or Jesus does. Paul, Jesus says we greet them. We don't avoid them at work or at school or at family reunions or at the lobby in the cof, in the coffee bar in the lobby at church. We seek them out. And wish them well. Dale Bruner says sometimes Jesus is not asking for exceptionally heroic behavior, but for behavior as routine as the way we greet people. It's an expression of our love for them. The simplest of Hebrew greetings was simply shalom, wishing someone peace. And so when they curse us, when they speak ill of us, we wish them well. We wish them God's peace. do good, bless. And the third thing he says that is to shape the way we love our enemies, he says that we are to pray for those who abuse or mistreat you. This needs a little clarification. We are to pray, but we are not to pray like this country western song lyric which says, I haven't been to church since I don't remember when. Things were going great till they fell apart again, so I listened to the preacher as he told me what to do, and he said, you can't go hating others who have done wrong to you. Sometimes we get angry, but we must not condemn. Let the good Lord do his job, and you just pray for them, and this is his prayer. I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray all your dreams never come true. Just know wherever you are, honey, I pray for you, okay? This is not what Jesus has in mind when he says we are to pray for our enemies, okay? It does raise the question, are your enemies on your prayer list? Are you praying for those who have mistreated you or abused you or done wrong to you or or wrong to those that you love? Are you praying for them to meet Christ and receive a grace that is even greater than the wrong they did to you? Praying for enemies, it brings blessing on them. And it frees us. Dale Bruner exhorts us that we are to pray and to pray and to pray some more until we feel something of God's love for difficult people. Prayer affects us and endears us to those who are our enemies. That is how we love our enemies, Jesus says. We do good, we bless them, and we pray for them. Now, I promised you... A why and two hows. One more how from a different angle. Um, Not how should we do this, but how can we do this? Where do we get the ability to love enemies? And John, the disciple of Jesus, who's renowned as the apostle of love in the New Testament, tells us in 1 John 4 that we are enabled to love because God loved us first. We love because He first loved us, He says. The idea is that the more we grasp the extent of God's love for us, the more we are enabled to love others. So I would say, pray this time for you that you would increasingly get what it means for you to be loved by God such that it enables you to even love your enemies. A great prayer to pray for your own heart is the one that Paul prayed for the church in Ephesians chapter 3 where he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you would know how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for you. That you might love others in turn. Now, it's critical that you understand that you simply cannot do this on your own. You cannot simply hear this teaching and try harder to love those who hate and abuse you. You must personally know the love of Christ for you. Do you know that love? Do you know that He loved you so much that He would bear the cross for you not for his sins or wrongdoings, but for yours, that you might be reconciled to God. You simply cannot love your enemies apart from experiencing the redemptive love of Christ as your Savior. That is how we are empowered to love. He loved us first. And the more we get that, the more we love. Now, some of you may be wondering, Okay, what does all this have to do with circle two, loving the church? Because surely we, we won't have enemies in the church, right? I mean, don't you like card them at the door and not let them in? Well, think, think about this with me. Um, there are children, there are kids, in, little kids in our church And they are skilled little sinners. (laughs) We do not have an entrance exam for children's ministry to weed them out. We actually let these little sinners come into our church, and they are in the class with your children. Okay. And they will mess with your kids, though I'm sure your children will never mess with anyone. These little (laughs) sinners will mess with your kids... And they will exclude your children, and they will take your child's toy, and they will steal their snack when they are not looking. Okay? It happens right here in the church. Now, you also need to know that there are bigger kids in our church, and they meet in this room, and they are even more skilled sinners. And they will snub you, and they will defriend you, and they will make you feel like you don't belong here. And what will you do when this happens to you or your family? Will you just avoid them? Or will you respond in kind? Or will you just walk away and never come back? Or will you love even those who are acting as your enemies? Jesus says, Love your enemies. And so today we say, we are lovers of God and followers of Jesus, so we will love our enemies. We will love one another, even when it is difficult, even when we are undeserving. And so today, as you come to this table to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to commune with the risen Christ, to share a meal with Him. Before you come, confess the sin that God has brought to mind of those whom you have chosen to be less than loving to, even though in your eyes they were even far less loving to you first. Confess that. And, And then come. Come to the table and grasp How much you are loved by God. That He would send His Son to die on the cross for you. How wide and how long and how deep and how high is God's love for you. And as you come to the table today, let me encourage... If if these two sections could use this center out to come and then return to your seats this way and use this table... And if you all could go this way and then return to your seats through that same aisle and the same over here, come this way and then return to your seats through that aisle, that'll help us make sure we have an injury-free celebration of the Lord's Supper together.